Well, good morning. Uh, as Evan said, my name is Timothy, one of the pastors here at Christ Central. Excited to be with you this morning. Before we dive into our text, I do have a quick announcement that I wanted to give to you. Uh, as I think most of you know, Durham Nativity School, who owns this building, who is our landlord, has been graciously allowing us to use the lawn uh, for outdoor worship for close to a year now uh, in the pandemic. Free of charge, I might add. Uh, pretty cool of them. Uh, what you probably don't know is that during this time, the school has been um, taking a lot of heat from the neighborhood, uh, from members of the neighborhood because of this decision, uh, because of the noise uh, that we have been making. And yet they've continued to offer the space to us uh, nonetheless. Um, however, based on what is happening in the pandemic and and out of respect for the neighbors, the, the board of the Nativity School has asked us to stop doing that outdoor service starting next week. Uh, I do hope if you get a chance, um, you'll take the opportunity to say thank you uh, to the Nativity School. They have been unbelievably uh, accommodating to us, just over at the top, above and beyond in this pandemic. So we have some amazing uh, landlords, and uh, they've just been great to us. So let them know how grateful we are uh, for the, just all the ways they've been there for us in this season. I know also that what I just shared is probably hard news for some of us to hear. A few things I want to remind you, though, in that, uh, we're continuing to online uh, do the live streaming, and we'll be doing that for the foreseeable future. And we do have socially distanced uh, indoor worship uh, in the lower level and then not socially distanced in the balcony. So we'd love for you to continue worshiping with us, uh, whatever way you're most comfortable. Uh, I know there's some volunteers that are saying hallelujah and amen. There's no more chairs to be set up, which is awesome. I know the sound crew and the uh, video crew is super grateful as well. Thank you all up there. Man, awesome. You guys, let's give there. It is so much work to do what we do out there. So uh, thank you all so much. Without further ado, uh, I'm going to ask that we now dive into the Word of God together. Last week, we started a new series in the Gospel of Luke entitled, That You May Know. And this week, we're going to be continuing in Luke chapter 1. We're going to be starting in verse 26. And so, as is our custom, I want to ask you if you're able to stand as we give attention to the Word of God. We're going to be in verse 26 through 38. This is God's word. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. 
And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We believe your word is true. And we ask that you would speak to us now through your word, that you would bring this text to life. And as we spend time here together, that we would, each and every one of us, encounter you, the living God. Father, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Do any of you have a certain TV show that you kind of find yourself stumbling into when nothing else is on? Maybe you don't really love the show, but you kind of always find yourself watching it. There was a time for me that that show was Undercover Boss. If you haven't seen it, the premise is that there is a CEO of a large corporation who's given a Hollywood caliber disguise. We're talking like a legit transformation so as to make the boss unrecognizable, even to people who might have seen this person many, many times before. And so then the boss goes undercover and works along some, alongside some of his or her entry-level employees. And most of the time, the point of the show is to highlight some of these entry-level employees who are just doing phenomenal work and not getting the, the recognition uh, that they deserve which is great, but that's not really why I watch. I really like it when they highlight the employees that are absolutely terrible and doing terrible work. And it's just hilarious when these employees are doing terrible work right in front of the CEO and they have no idea. And the best is when they even go so far as to make comments negatively about the CEO when they don't know that he or she is standing right in front of them. What the show is highlighting and and turning into entertainment is that we are all conditioned to relate to one another based upon the other person's status. And we we know this to be true. I mean, we do this all the time. In the workplace, we relate differently to our boss than we do to our coworker or to our employee. In the home, we relate differently to our spouse than we do to our roommate or to our kids or to the dog. In the classroom, we relate differently to our teacher than we do to our classmate. You get the idea. And there's nothing wrong with this. There's nothing wrong with this social construct. It's not a bad thing. Really, humans need some kind of order in order to function well with one another, which is why the undercover boss is so entertaining. Because when you remove that that known order of things, chaos often ensues. What does that have to do with Luke chapter 1? Last week, Evan did a marvelous job of showing us what the authorial intent of Luke's gospel is, what the author is trying to communicate in this text. And oftentimes in literature, we have to guess or kind of try to figure out what the author is up to, but not in Luke. No, in Luke, in chapter 1, he makes it crystal clear what his intent is. He writes so that we may know. Luke's book 
is written so that we might know something, so that certain truths would land and, and reside in our hearts. But what is it that Luke wants us to know? What you will see over the next 13 weeks as we unpack the first nine chapters of Luke's gospel is that there is really one primary thing that Luke wants us to know. Who is God? Who is God? That's what Luke is after. And the reason why this is so important is because if we don't know exactly who God is, then we become like the naive employee on Undercover Boss, totally clueless as to how we are to respond to him. So I've just got two points this morning, very simple. Number one, who is God? Number two, so what? Who is God and so what? So let's begin Our text this morning is certainly one of the more notorious of all the gospel stories. Rarely in the scriptures does God send one of his angels to communicate with his people. And the message that this angel brings to this woman is clearly one of the most important messages in the entire New Testament. And we don't get a whole lot of detail here into what this looked like or or what this angel Uh, was like in appearance and form. But one thing is clear in the scriptures is that when an angel comes, it's a pretty frightening thing. It's very different from what you see in your children's Bible with the cute and cuddly wings and halo. But But Gabriel's desire is certainly not to scare Mary. And the way he seeks to assuage her fear is by informing Mary why he is here and who has sent him. Look at verse 29. Gabriel says, Greetings, O favorable one. The Lord is with you. Gabriel's saying, Don't be afraid, Mary. I am here because the Lord has sent me. Now, I want to draw your attention to the title that Gabriel uses here for God. He calls God the Lord. Now, that may not mean a whole lot to you, but in fact, that word gives us incredible insight into who God is. And I need to begin by acknowledging here that I'm forever indebted to Dr. John Frame, a seminary professor of mine who has done amazing work on this subject and has really shaped my own understanding of who God is. But what we understand when we study this word Lord, the Greek word Adonai, which is, corresponds to the Hebrew word Yahweh. You may have heard that word before. Quick Bible tip for you. Whenever you see the word Lord in the Old Testament in all caps, it stands for this Hebrew word Yahweh. We see this word over 6,500 times in the Old Testament. It's a really important word, right? And the reason this word comes up over and over again is that many would argue, and I would agree, that the lordship of God is really the primary theme of the Old Testament. To this day, if you were to ask a Jewish man or woman, what is the fundamental belief of Judaism, of the Jewish faith, they would respond, no question, with what is referred to as the Shema. It comes out of Deuteronomy 6. It's, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the fundamental message of the Old Testament, really the whole Bible for that matter. God is Lord. That's who he is. What does that mean? A devout Jew like Mary, when she heard that the Lord, that that Yahweh was with her, she would have been deeply impacted by that statement. But what about you and me? 
When we hear that God is Lord, what does that do for us? For many of us, Lord is, is a word we just put in front of God in our prayers, like it's his first name. We thank you, Lord God. We pray to you, Lord God. Lord God, be with us. But does that word Lord impact the way you understand who God is? I hope and pray that if it doesn't now, it will by the end of this sermon. So let's dive into this word a little bit. When you study this word Lord in the scriptures, what you find out is that the Lordship of God really speaks to three aspects of his character. His control, his authority, and his presence. To say that God is Lord is to declare that he has absolute control, supreme authority, and that he is near. I want you to look at each of these with me. God is in control. If God is Lord, that means that he has the ability, the power to do whatever he desires. He is in no way limited in anything that he does. To say that God is Lord is to say that he is authoritative, meaning that he has the right to do whatever he pleases. There are countless examples of people that have control but don't have authority to exercise that control. We call that abuse. But the Lord God, he is creator of all things and he has the authority to use his power as he pleases. God is near. To say that God is Lord talks about his nearness. And this is Pretty basic deductive reasoning. You cannot be fully in control unless you are fully present, unless you are near. You can't have absolute control from a distance. So what the Bible is saying when it refers to God as Lord is saying that he is all three of these, that he is in control, that he is worthy of, our contro- of that control, and that he is near. Now, I want to show you how we see that profoundly here in Luke chapter 1, God's control, authority, and presence. First, let's look at God's control. 1985, a group of about 150 scholars gathered to debate the historicity of all the biblical claims around Jesus, whether or not these items that we see in the Gospels are true or not. And they concluded a number of things, but one of the things that they concluded that's pertinent for today is that they, decided, they concluded that Jesus was not, in fact, born of a virgin. And their reason was because science has proven that a virgin cannot conceive a child. And they found no evidence to discredit that which science has shown to be true. Now, the problem is, with that statement, if our God is subservient to science, then he is not in control. If he is in any way limited by only that which science will allow for, then he has no control at all. Which is why the virgin birth has always been and continues to be a foundational tenet of Orthodox Christianity. Because to embrace God as Lord is to accept that he has control with no limits. And no doubt the greatest expression of God's control is his ability to create life which is what we see here in Luke chapter 1. As the angel proclaims in verse 37, nothing is impossible for God. Because God is Lord, his control is absolute. Let's look then at authority. What does Luke 1 have to say about God's authority? One of my favorite parts of this text is Mary's initial response to Gabriel. Verse 29, Mary says, but Mary was greatly troubled 
at what the angel said and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Mary's saying, who, me? Gabriel, I think you are mistaken. I think you got the wrong gal. You must be at the wrong house. Don't miss this, church. Mary is a young woman, probably in her teens. As one commentator says, a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. I mean, the right choice would have been Caiaphas's daughter, right? You know, the daughter of the high priest. She lived in Jerusalem. She was fair and rich. She was clothed in the finest of apparel. She was weighted on hand and foot. That's who should have been the mother of the Son of God. However, if God is Lord, then that means he has the authority to do whatever he pleases. And what our text reveals is that for some strange reason, God was pleased to have Mary carry the Son of God in her womb. What a beautiful picture of the fact that our God is not limited by what the world thinks is right or wise or good. We don't get a vote in the matter, but rather, quote to quote Psalm 135, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth. If God is Lord, then his authority is supreme. What about presence? What does our text say about God's presence? Look again at verse 28. Gabriel says, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is what? The Lord is with you. Don't miss this, church. This is not a message strictly from Gabriel to Mary. No, this is the message that God has been delivering to his people for thousands of years. This is the essence of the covenantal relationship that God has with his people, Israel. And it's echoed throughout the Old Testament over and over and over again. He says, you will be my people and I will be your God. And then here in Luke chapter 1, that statement takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? The nearness that God has promised to his people, the nearness that made Israel distinct from all other nations just got a whole lot nearer. Because what the text says is that the baby, this baby that you will carry in your womb, Mary, he is the son of God. This is what theologians call the incarnation, the creator God becoming one of his creation, becoming one of us. A baby that's both fully God and fully man. As Eugene Peterson says in his translation of John chapter 1, God became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. It doesn't get any nearer than that. God is Lord, then that means he is unbelievably near to us. So who is God? He is the Lord which means he's fully in control, which means he is worthy of that control and that he has drawn near to us, as near as near can be. So what? Who cares? Why does it matter that God is Lord? The answer goes back to my opening illustration. You see, knowing who someone is inevitably determines how we respond to them. And knowing that God is Lord demands a certain type of response from us, his servants. And thankfully for us, us, there's no better picture in all of Scripture of the right response to the lordship of God than Mary in Luke chapter 1. Now you need to understand the full weight of what's going on here and what was on the table when Gabriel 
propositioned Mary with this grand idea. He told Mary that she was going to have a baby out of wedlock, placed in her womb by the Holy Spirit. Now the problem is, verse 27 says that Mary was engaged. And what's different from then than it is now is that the engagement period in first century Jewish culture lasted about a year. Do you know one of the reasons why they did that super long engagement? It's because the men wanted to make sure that the woman that they were about to marry was sexually pure before marrying her. So if their fiancé did not get pregnant in that engagement period, they would know for sure that their bride was pure. Do you now see the problem with Gabriel's proposal? There's no question that this is going to destroy Mary's reputation and likely end her engagement. Imagine the looks she would have gotten walking through town. The horrible names that her son would have been called on the way to school. Do you see how costly this would have been for Mary? In order to move forward, she would have had to have been willing to give up Joseph, to give up her reputation, and to give up so much more. Not only that, but what she didn't know then and we know now is that she, if she went forward with this, she'd have to endure the arrest, the trial, the beating, and the crucifixion of her son. I think we can all agree that no mother should ever have to endure such a thing as that. Just to be clear, unlike me, Mary did not go kicking and screaming when God called on her. Her words are an example for all of us. She's being asked to give up so much, to endure so much suffering and hostility, and she responds by saying, listen to this, verse 38, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. I think it's worth reminding us of some of the other times in Scripture when God calls on his people for great and difficult things. Remember when God called on Moses? He tries to squirm out of it because he's not a very good speaker. Remember when God called on Gideon and he tried to bail because he was too weak? Remember when God called on Jeremiah and he said, no thanks God, I'm I'm too young? All these men that God called on and their responses were terrible. And here we have a teenage girl who chooses to trust God and obey with the hardest task of them all and without an ounce of hesitation or reservation. Man, I wish I had a sister who'd say amen right there. How? How was Mary able to so willingly endure so much? I think the answer is that she clearly, more than most, more than me, knew exactly who God was, that he was Lord. She believed that God was absolutely in control, and the angel gives her further evidence of this, verse 36, that her aged aunt Elizabeth was miraculously pregnant. She believed that God was supremely authoritative, meaning that she was going to obey him above all else, that no loyalty superseded her loyalty to God. And she believed that God was near, that his promise to never leave her or forsake her was true, and that God would be right there beside her all the way to the end. And because of all of that, she was willing and wholeheartedly able to consent to a lifetime of suffering for the glory of God. I doubt there is a clearer picture in all of the scriptures of what it means to be a Christian 
And to like Mary say, behold, I am your servant God. Let it be done to me according to your word. So I want to conclude with a question. Is that the posture of your heart, of your life? Do you, like Mary, see God as Lord and you as his servant? And therefore, are you willing to accept whatever it is that God has for you? I think it's interesting how the church has disagreed for some time about what to do with Mary. Many have argued that Mary is the gold standard, as close to divine as a human being can get, so godly that she is in fact worthy of our worship. If I'm honest, I think that is the absolute wrong way to read Luke chapter 1. And I think Mary would be appalled if she knew people saw her that way. I want you to listen to the words of Mary that come later in chapter 1 that, that, that disprove that idea. This is a song that she sings back to God. It's a song of gratitude and thanksgiving. She sings, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary's message is, I am nothing. Why me, God? God, I'm in no way deserving of this great honor, and yet you, the mighty God, has graciously poured out your blessings on little old me. Her message is, go God, not go me. And the whole point, the reason why God chose Mary in the first place is that God is highlighting here that he uses not great people, certainly not great in the world's eyes, but he uses people who are available and who are willing. And you know what? All of us have that to offer. Availability and willingness. The question for you and for me on this day is why, excuse me, what are you holding on to too tightly? What is hindering you? What is hindering me from being available and willing to God? Is it status, money, fame, comfort, control? All of those for me. What is keeping you from honestly saying to God, let it be done to me according to your word? You see, Mary believed that God was Lord. And because of that belief, she gave up everything for him. And my prayer for you and for me is that more and more each day, we would let go of these things that we hold to so tightly that hold on to us and cling to the Lord God who is worthy of our service. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess that um, this is so hard to, to honestly and truthfully say, as Mary did, may it be done to me according to your word. It's so scary. Lord, there's things that we value so much that we're, we really struggle to let go of. Father, would you help us? Give us the courage to let go of the things that we think will satisfy and to cling tightly to you. 
so that we might be able to truthfully and honestly and from the heart say, God, may it be done to us according to your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.